Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. Last week, Frankie and I had the chance to catch up with the first female Home Secretary, Jackie Smith. We discussed her time in the Home Office, her time as Deputy Minister for Women and Equalities, and her role within the Labour Women's Network. Jackie draws on her experience to highlight the ways that the Tories are failing and what Labour must do going forward. We, of course, also touched on her upcoming debut in this year's Strictly Come Dancing. Here's our conversation. Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. And um, how's lockdown been for you, first of all? Hi, Frankie. It's a real pleasure to be on the show, first of all. Um, well, lockdown has been, I suppose, say, similar for me as it's been for lots of people. I hate... Um, not being able to get out and about and meet people. I've been able to do most of my work because at the moment my, uh, well, my jobs include being the chair of University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Trust, um, one of the biggest trusts in England, and chairing a children's trust in Sandwell, a bit of international work, some of which I've been able to do online, and, of course, recording my podcast with... Uh, Ian Dale, for the many, once a week, uh, and even my Good Morning Britain on a Friday morning, which I've been able to do via Skype. So I've been able to do my work, but I suppose like everybody, the thing that you miss is the contact with people and just that, that bit of conversation and contact that you have around meetings that isn't quite, however good we're getting at this virtual world, it isn't quite the same as it when you're you're doing it via your laptop rather than face to face. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you've been so busy keeping up with everything, um, various projects going on. <laughs> it's been a busy time, particularly as you can imagine, in terms of the, the health service role. And um, UHB is actually the trust which has seen more COVID cases than any other trust. And sadly, of course, therefore has seen more COVID deaths than any other trust. And that has been busy, um, particularly back in April and May, when it really did look as if the health service was only just keeping ahead in terms of capacity of the numbers of people who were needing it and using it. 
Um, but but fingers crossed we succeeded at that point in keeping just ahead. Now, of course, the numbers are have risen again, although hopefully stabilising now, I think, in in Birmingham. But it means that I've been I have been able to see the response to the pandemic, both the good and the bad at sort of pretty close quarters. That's really interesting. And and as well, we've seen local lockdowns and university students going back, which has created a huge amount of problems. Um, and you've had you've got a background in um, teaching in the education sector as um, before your time um, as Home Secretary. Um, how do you think the government should be responding now to those sort of issues. Um, um, what what should the prime minister do to rectify this huge mess that we're in? Mm. Well, I was at the beginning. I was reasonably sympathetic to the government and the challenges that they were facing responding to the pandemic. You know, I was in government for ten years in the last Labour government. I never faced a crisis as serious as this pandemic. So I think it was beholden on all politicians and people who'd experienced it to try to provide the government with support in dealing with it. But uh, that doesn't mean that that is unqualified support. And as time has gone on, I think that we've seen that there have been decisions that the government has made and ways particularly perhaps that they have communicated that have not been what we would have hoped for from um, a competent government. And it's been right that the opposition, whilst maintaining that broadly constructive approach to supporting the government, has also been critical. So, you know, I just think about, with the with the teaching hat on, for example, you know, I was a teacher before I went into Parliament. I was an education minister on two separate occasions. And I can't believe that... Gavin Williamson, frankly, was as slow as he was to try to engage as wide a range of people as possible in getting kids back to school. Of course, it was. it's immensely difficult. I've got teachers now in my family who, t- who tell me how difficult it is now in September. But surely what that needed was bringing together representatives of teachers, local authorities, other experts in order to be able to put a plan in place. And that just never seemed to happen. They, they, they seem to veer between a completely laissez-faire approach and then a sort of condemning people for not having got kids back to school earlier. Similarly with, you know, uh, local lockdowns, we saw um, a sort of centralised approach to telling people that things were getting serious in their area, but a failure to really, certainly at the beginning to really engage local experts, local public health, local government in coming up with the ideas. And, you know, I'm not, for goodness sake, I'm not opposed to using the private sector where it's going to help us in public policy. But the sort of obsession with giving whether or not it's test and tracing contracts or contracts to support, for example, in my trust, we developed the Nightingale in Birmingham. We had private sector involvement in that, which frankly did not really contribute much. But it seems to have been the order of the day at every stage that private sector companies have been brought in and haven't always helped to deliver what's been necessary during the course of this period. And then finally, of course, the communication, you know, 
the government that I was part of was sometimes accused of being, you know, all about spin, blah, blah, blah. Well, there are times when actually how you communicate, particularly in a crisis, is fundamental to the success of your ability to be able to deal with it. And the government has just lacked clarity in terms of explaining to people what is going to be required of them, how the pandemic is progressing. And, you know, let's not even start on the impact that Dominic Cummings' pretty blatant breaking of at least the spirit, if not the letter of the law around regulations, damaged the government's ability to be trusted by people. You've mentioned their um, failures from Michael Gove, uh, Matt Hancock, Jemrick, Gavin Williamson, um, um, and of course, of course, Boris Johnson. Um, either implicitly or explicitly, there they're all in, they're all involved in the mishandling of the of the pandemic. Um, but there's also a crisis in the Home Office as well. Um, and Pretty Patel seems to have at, at, at times during this pandemic kind of flown under the radar. But what do you make as former Home Secretary, as the first female Home Secretary? What do you make of the current Home Office agenda and the problems that? We've seen in the in the department recently with Priti Patel playing political football with asylum seekers, um, vowing to make uh, the Channel Crossing unviable, and then the of course the Channel Crossing is only increased after that statement's made because asylum seekers asylum seekers are worried about more serious things than what the UK government thinks of their journey. Um, so, what do you make of the way that Priti Patel is dealing with these issues that are going on almost in the background as a consequence of our focus on COVID? I can't quite make up my mind, you know, with Priti Patel, whether or not she has backed off engagement during the course of the crisis or she's been shut out of engagement during the course of the crisis. Because one of my criticisms of the government's response has been the very narrow range of people that they have involved in decision making at a central level. Now, you know, everybody knows that in government, Sometimes what we need to do is to get together a tight group of people in order to make decisions. But over the month of the response to the pandemic, it has felt as if there is a very small group with quite a narrow set of experiences who've been making the decisions, largely, if not universally male and of a particular social background. So then are we surprised if they make mistakes like suggesting that everybody should head back to work on a Monday morning without having given, it seems, the slightest bit of thought to those people who are dependent on childcare or public transport for their ability to be able to go to work. I just don't I just don't think a diverse team thinking this through would have made that mistake. So then let's come to Pretty Patel and as you say, you know, how has the Home Office been uh, operating? Where has she been when there have been questions about the role of the police, the nature of the regulation and the punishment around that in in terms of lockdown? Nowhere, as far as I can see. And yet you're right, Joe, that, of course, what she has done is sort of ramped up the rhetoric around um, immigration, particularly asylum seekers, whilst failing to solve the problem. You know, there is a Um, It does appear that there is a growing issue about people so desperate that they are putting themselves into ships and trying to come across the channel. That is not going to be solved by rhetoric about 
sending people to the Ascension Islands to have their asylum claims um, uh, dealt with, or uh, which incidentally I'm not sure she did do, but you know that's the sort of story that's coming that's coming out, or you know standing and announcing that you're appointing a czar for. Um, stopping channel crossings, which also doesn't seem to have been effective. This is the thing about the Home Office is it is um, grind and it is detailed policy making, and certainly in relation to immigration, it is working with our partners internationally in order to be able to mitigate some of the the factors that are leading to people being in the north of France and so desperate that they want to come across the channel. None of those things she seems to me to be equipped to do, not least the international work, because, of course, <laughs> I want there to be more women that are, that are Home Secretary, but I have got a bit of a view that Priti Patel is there more because of her steadfast um, Brexit credentials than she is there because she's the type of minister who can take on that sort of a role. And if that's what you bring to the table, it's not surprising you can't reach out internationally and make the sort of links and get the sort of results that are necessary if you're going to have a successful Home Office. And hanging over, of course, we also have this bullying report, which is still sitting, it seems, at the centre of government and nobody is making a decision about whether or not the allegations against her were or were not founded and therefore what should happen to her. And and staying on her and, and what you just mentioned about the fact that the, the Tory cabinet is, I mean, it's a Brexit cabinet, really. And um, if we look at the last, the last four or five years rather than the last um, seven or eight months, do you think there's a there's a tendency within the government? They're relinquishing international responsibility, like you say, and moving to the right um on cultural issues and becoming more authoritarian as well. I mean, the rules imposed as, as a consequence of COVID that have certainly authoritarian leanings and as much as people justify and say that some of them have been correct, does that not leave open the possibility that this Tory party can then be harsher on immigration and be far more authoritarian on immigration um, from a rhetorical standpoint as much as anything else? Because we've already seen a massive Tory lean to the right on cultural issues since since 2016. Um, so kind of looking back more generally over the last half decade, do you see that shift as something very significant? Look, I, you know, I'm a former Home Secretary. I don't mind a bit of authoritarianism when uh, when it's called on. And, you know, clearly like most Labour Home Secretaries was criticised for that um, at the time. But you need to... If you're going to impose on people's freedoms, at the very least you owe them competence and clarity in explanation about the nature of those restrictions and the way in which you're going about it. And the government has on numerous occasions failed on that in terms of the some of the recent uh, restrictions. I mean, I think, to be honest with you, Joe, I think you almost put too much you give too much credence to a sort of strategic approach that's being taken by this government. I mean, I think there is no doubt that Priti Patel is taking a pretty anti-immigration, um, closed approach to her policy making. Um, and that does fit, as I suggested, you know, that does fit with the rest of her, her view. But the essential problem for this current Conservative Party, I think, is a leader who isn't 
clear actually what his policy I mean, of course he's been thrown off track by by covid but he has failed to make a broader argument about the type of country and its role in the world post brexit that he wants to see because he just can't get himself focused on things and just doesn't work hard enough frankly and i think it's that that permeates through the government rather than any sort of positive strategic shift i think this is a government you know old old people like me are always going to look back on former governments particularly labor governments and say oh well you know look at the quality of the people that were involved in that government but on the whole for the you know 13 years that labor was in government people were in the cabinet of course because of political allegiances but they were in the cabinet or in ministerial roles because they had some talent and ability to deliver on them there wasn't such an explicit um alienation of of people um uh, keeping them essentially keeping them out of the front line of the government because their views didn't uh, didn't go along with what the prime minister believes that there is at the moment you're right your qualification to be in the cabinet is have you been sufficiently loyal to boris and to a sort of reasonably hardline brexit position almost without exception and you're not going to get the most talented even Tory ministers, if that's your approach. <laughs> Absolutely agree with that. Um, focusing specifically now on um, sort of post-Brexit world and the strategy that the government are taking, um, when you're in the Home Office, you you really push for um, bringing in ID cards. And do you think that now that should come to the, the forefront again, that discussion? Um, do you think that now is the right time um, because of Brexit that we should really pursue that that again? Well, wasn't uh, didn't we have the bizarre situation of even David Davis suggesting we might need some sort of proof of ID um, in recent months? Look, um, what the what the policy was was to say in our complex um, IT connected um, world. Having a safe and secure way to both safeguard and to prove your identity makes all sorts of sense in terms of your ability to access public services, your ability to prove your identity in the private sector and to secure, uh, to, to a certain extent, for security because uh, it's more difficult for people to steal identities in order to commit crime or to commit terrorism. That is a sort of, to me, it's, it strikes me that that is a sort of obviously sensible thing if government is able to do it, that you should do. And that was what we were delivering, in fact, in terms of the ID programme uh, with um, in the last government, the ability to be able to um, use biometrics to effectively tie somebody's identity to their biometric identity and therefore make it easier for them to prove who they were and harder for other people to pretend they were them. That makes sense then. It makes sense now. I think it is a idea that will come back round again. Of course, I understand people's concerns around privacy, around the safety of their, their data. 
I don't think those things are insurmountable. And it always used to surprise me. And it's only got more stark since then that people who are adamantly opposed to government having their uh, having a small amount of their data to prove their identity are happy to give enormous amounts of their data to private sector organisations who then use it far less carefully and to far less public policy effect than an ID system would have done. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The, yeah, the, the, the fear around um, state holding data, um, as well founded as it is, does seem to ignore the fact that there are these companies that we we scroll through their timelines, we we tell them everything that they that they could possibly want to know about us every day. And yeah, um, turning to your turning to your time um, as the deputy minister for for women and equalities, you were instrumental in pushing civil partnerships through. Um, and I'm interested to know what you think, Liz Trust, that the, the now Women Equalities Minister needs to do to ensure progress and, and what her kind of her main focus should be at this point? Um, well, we did, you know, we did a whole range of things. I am incredibly proud about the civil partnership legislation, which paved the way for the equal marriage provisions that uh, we now have in place, which are absolutely the right thing to do. You know, just just on that, of course, Sometimes, occasionally people will say, well, why didn't you go all the way with equal marriage at the, at the time? It's interesting and positive to see how attitudes and policy has moved on because nowadays civil partnership seems like the sort of rather weak um, uh, policy option. It didn't feel like that at the time. There was a lot of opposition. There was a lot of Tory opposition. Uh, of course, there were Tories, rightly, who who believed in it and who got behind it. Alan Duncan, who was my opposite number as we took the legislation through, was a strong supporter of, of civil partnerships. But he wasn't always supported at, very much at all from his backbenches. So, first of all, it was absolutely right to, to I think, to take that first step, which paved the way to further measures for um, equality. But... I mean, even if we're just talking about 
that area of equalities. You know, we we only need to look at the way in which there still needs to be progress, I would say, on um, uh, the sort of uh, way in which we educate children, the international, uh, the freedoms that some uh, that, that gay people are more able to take for granted in the UK are very far from being delivered internationally. And how can we join a sort of international campaign to ensure that 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 happens. We still have a situation in terms of other areas of the equality work that we that we were focusing on, where you know equal pay is not yet delivered. Um, lockdown has been enormously interesting in what it's told us about the ability for people to, for example, to be able to work flexibly. Because one of the other things that I, I did in that role was we introduced with Patricia Hewitt as the um, Secretary of State for, for Women and Equalities and also as uh, at the DTI, um, the sort of equivalent of base as it would be now, Secretary of State, we introduced a right to request um, the uh, flexible working within the workplace, which seemed quite you know radical at the time. Um, we've got, people have gone slightly further since then, but there's still been a real idea that somehow or another it's incredibly difficult for people to be able to work flexibly can you really work from home all of those other things well if there's one thing good thing that's come out of the lockdown it's that actually it is much more possible to organize work in a way that facilitates people doing a range of other things caring responsibilities but also other things in their life that limits the amount that they have to commute which is good and that just gives them possibly a more rounded life. And so those are some of the, the areas where I think we still need to make progress. We've seen, of course, during lockdown, the just the real hurt, the anguish that has come from the killing of George Floyd, the um, development of the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, issues around that, the Almost every organisation that I work for has responded to that by saying we really do need to do better. We need to do better in the way in which we deliver our services equally to people. We need to do better in the representation uh, of uh, black people in our workforce. We need to think about the way that we promote and um, employ people. There's been a lot of sort of, I think, genuine wish to change the real test now is, is that as other things become more, you know, become significant again, is that energy and angst going to be lost or is it actually going to be translated into real changes for people, both in the workplace and more widely in society? And I, I slightly fear that it might be lost again. And I think we just need to keep revisiting the way that we felt committed to changing at the point at which we felt really angry about that and make sure that we make those changes real. And I think like you're implying there, I mean, there's so many uh, adv adv uh, advertisements there for, for um, progressive steps, steps towards progress, even if it's not a full leap, even if it's not a six foot jump, it's taking those steps because progress can be gradual. And I think, you know, we certainly lose that nuance sometimes in today's politics. No, no, it can be. I, I think I think you're right, Joe. It can be gradual, but it takes more than a pronouncement in order to deliver it. It takes more than chest beating 
It takes more than saying this time things are going to be different. You actually do have to take those practical steps. Something has to change. Probably somebody somewhere needs to give up some power or some privilege in order to enable those changes to happen. And that's the stage we're now at. And that's the bit where you've got to really keep driving in order to make the change. Daniel, definitely, definitely agree. And um, touching, you touched on some of the other successes that you've that you've had in in, um, in your time in different roles in, in the government. Um, what would you say your proudest achievement was other than other than civil partnerships? I was proud to be the first female Home Secretary. I was proud that in that role, we sort of finished the job at that point of making policing very much more neighbourhood based, that we turned the focus of a lot of policing onto how they could both reassure and work with communities more widely. And I'm enormously sorry that that progress and that different approach to policing in communities was essentially completely hollowed out by the reduction in the number of police officers. So, you know, my condemnation of this government in cutting the number of police officers, you know, of course I don't subscribe. I understand when people say cutting crime isn't only about the number of police officers. Of course that's true. But actually having a sufficient number of police officers and a real push on them working alongside communities, engaging with people, working broadly with a range of partners to tackle, dare I say it, crime and the causes of crime, um, then then you make a difference. And we've seen that hollowed out again. And, and you know, that's disappointing because you sort of, you're in government and you think, I've made a change and it's going gonna, it's gonna to really stay. This proves why we need to keep fighting to get back into government again, because things go backwards and we're going to need a Labour government in order to, of course, move forward and deal with the challenges of today, but also to get back to some of the things that we genuinely made a difference on when we were in government as well. Yeah, it feels like a long time since um, we've had a Labour government, um, but... (laughs) Feels like quite a long time, Frankie, since we thought it was a good idea to have a Labour government. Thank goodness we are now celebrating the achievements of the last Labour government rather than defining ourselves against them. Absolutely, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so as the former Deputy Minister for Women's Inequalities, you've, you've sat on the Labour, Labour Women's Network um, for a while and um, recently been re-elected, which is really exciting. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the role of Labour Women's Network and why our listeners should get involved if, they've, if they're not already involved? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... Um, I have been, I think, since 2010 or 2011 on the on the management committee of uh, Labour Women's Network. Uh, it is a joyful role. Um, I take part in and contribute to the training that Labour Women's Network is about, because essentially our job is to make sure that women have their place and their voice in all parts of the Labour Party. And we have sort of traditionally been associated with supporting women to stand for parliamentary roles and it was Labour Women's Network and the women uh, around Labour Women's Network who campaigned of course for all women shortlists and we still do Um, in the first place. I was proud to have been selected on an all women shortlist and frankly we would never have got the numbers of women elected in 1997 nor the continued progress uh, in terms of women's representation in parliament without all women shortlist and the work of 
uh, Labour Women's Network. But we've also broadened out our work now. So we um, we campaign. We've recently, uh, I think, you know, with others, had some success around um, uh, the baby leave policy in local government, for example. We've we make we we make sure that we call out um, meetings and panels that are all male. We work to ensure that women are able to take their place at all levels of the party's elected representation. And there is a long way to go if you look at the situation in terms of elected mayors or police and crime commissioners or the leadership of local government, even though we've made progress in Parliament. So there's a lot more still to be done. And Labour Women's Network, I think, provides both the voice for that and the practical support through training and I, helping women to identify uh, what needs to change in order to allow them to fulfil their their proper role within within the party, and that's why it feels to me something worthwhile doing because I benefited from it. And one of the things I am really clear about from having had the the you know the honour of the successful career in government that I've had is that I'm not I don't want to leave other women behind, and I want to make sure that they are able to contribute as well. And of course. One of the other things that Labour Women's Network has has led for in the Labour Party has been the development of the Joe Cox um, leadership programme, which has seen lots of women going through a phenomenal training and getting themselves into positions of, of real responsibility and impact. And for me, that's sort of particularly significant because Joe, of course, was the chair of Labour Women's Network. And after her murder, the setting up of the Joe Cox Foundation, um, which is, of course, separate from the Labour Party, but close to my heart because I now chair it, uh, is enabling us to continue her work as the inspiring, campaigning Labour MP, mother, campaigner that she was. Yeah, I think so. I think Labour Women's Network has a really important role within the party, and you're absolutely right. Um, and it's got it's got a really important role of sort of putting pressure on the party itself and the NEC. Um, and mm. what do you think the party could really learn from those who spoke out against sort of harassment and assault and misuse of power um, within the party? What do you think the NEC um, and the the governing bodies of the Labour Party should do now? Well, Labour Women's Network had a very clear. Um, position that um, it was not it is not possible you know I mean we would take this position in almost every other part of our lives so why wouldn't we take it in our party that it is not possible to mark your own homework when it comes to allegations of harassment or worse and that you need an independent investigation uh, facility ability and, and facility in order to be able to properly respond to the concerns the issues frankly the disgraceful events that women have brought forward to the party and which in the past have been for a variety of reasons not properly investigated and in some cases just completely ignored what does it say to women that the party that purports to be about equality and tackling um and enabling people to make their way in life is not willing to properly investigate circumstances in which women have been really badly treated within the party and by other party members you know we have got to sort that out and it was a similar sort of failure to grip uh, 
um, an issue that led to the utter stain of anti-Semitism that, you know, came across the party over the last few years, the inability to step back and realise what you were doing, what you were saying to Jewish people in that in that particular case that was so at odds with what our political philosophy and approach should have been. And as an advocate for, for Labour values, like you just talked about, in your role um, on the Labour Women's Network um, and as an advocate for Labour victory as well, as a mm. former MP and minister, <laughs> what are your, whisper it, but realistic hopes for the party kind of more generally as, as we look to the next election? Well, I feel more optimistic now than I felt, I think, at any point since 2010. So that's good. Um, I, you know, I joined the Labour Party in 1979 as we went out of government uh, the last time. And I was sort of 16 and full of enthusiasm and convinced that we would be back in no time at all. I mean, I wasn't so convinced when I read the 1983 manifesto, but of course, you know, you keep being hopeful and it took us all of that time, that 18 years in order to get back into government. I just, we just cannot allow it to take that long this time, but it is a big job. You know, I think Keir Starmer has made a good start as leader. I think he's, going back to the point I was making about the government and competence in the cabinet, I mean, what a relief to see a group of people in the shadow cabinet who are thinking who can explain our policies and our values, who when you hear them on the Today programme in the morning, you don't want to wince, but you actually think, oh, thank goodness, yeah, phew, good. Uh, you know, that's the start, but it's not the end. And there is a lot of work to be done. First of all, just to be listened to, okay, has made a good start on that, and then to begin that real hard work of building credibility, of building the policy programme, of testing it, of persuading people that they can think about Labour again, of beginning to get those messages out, of boiling it down to the key points that are going to really demonstrate to people that we've changed and that you can trust us to get back into government again. That is a massive task. I hope it can be done in the next four years, but it's a very, very big job indeed. Absolutely. And almost as big a job as going on Strictly Come Dancing, I might add. Um, and... no, nicely done there, Frankie. Nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. Really prepared that one. Um, yeah, we, we, like many within the party, are on the edge of our seats, really excited about your big debut on the show. Um, how, how is it all going to work with the, the COVID restrictions? Um, yeah, well, I mean, first of all, thank you. Thank you very much. And do you know, I've always believed in my life that it's completely possible to be incredibly serious about the work that you do, the politics that you believe in, the values that you hold, and to have fun as well. And never have we more needed the joy that is strictly on a Saturday night than we than we need it this year in, in 2020. But it is going to be a little bit different. I mean, I am recording this podcast today, having moved into a flat in London, having said goodbye to my loved ones um, in my current bubble and starting in a new bubble, which I will need to be in with my partner. Don't know who it is yet, but I'm meeting them this week. 
And um, essentially, it will be, I will be in that bubble and we will train together and we will perform together. We won't be able to be as close to other competitors uh, as would normally be the case in Strictly. The judges will all be sitting on three separate tables rather than all close together. And at the moment, it's not quite clear if there can be any audience at all. We're hopeful that there might be a small um, audience, which would obviously be lovely. But this, you know, the Strictly team, they are something else, I tell you. And I think it is still going to look fantastic. And I think it is going to, I hope, bring some joy. I mean, I've been gobsmacked. I, I love Strictly. I've watched Strictly. I enjoy Strictly. But you'd be amazed at the number of other seemingly serious people I mean yes not seemingly actually serious people who just have said to me oh I'm so pleased that one you're doing Strictly and two more importantly that Strictly is on at all because we could really do with it this year so you know let's hope that we can bring some joy and let's hope for goodness sake I don't fall over that I get a patient partner that I don't show myself up but frankly you know I'm going to take the advice of Ed Balls who called me when it was announced and I think gave very good advice about what people I think are looking for on Strictly is of course they want to see you dancing well and I, I will practice really, really hard, but they want to see you throwing yourself into it and embracing it. You know, there's no point doing Strictly in a slightly sort of sardonic way. You've just got to flipping go for it and um, <laughs> that, that's what I'm going to do and hopefully it'll be successful. <laughs> that, that is what makes it, I think, some of the best TV of the year, certainly. I mean, my house has been addicted to it for years. Mm -hmm. um, and I was I was too young to remember this firsthand, but I've been told that you might have a slight competitive advantage going to Strictly from your time with the Division Bells. Can you tell us a bit about that? And maybe our listeners as well, because I'm not sure how many of them know what I'm talking about. I have to be honest about the Division Bells, which was um, a group of Labour women MPs, including Hazel Blears, who's a really bloody good dancer, Caroline Flint, others. I think Laura Moffat was in it and others. I only went once to the Division Bells I because I was a minister um, and I'd got... I'd got a young family. I was quite under the cosh. And I really wish now I had gone to the Division Bells more and done the, the dance training that they did because it might actually have set me in better stead for Strictly now. But they are supporting me. They keep, they, they've sort of reminded me about the Division Bells. Though let's help, let's hope some of it rubbed off on me, you know. And what a brilliant, you know, I would say this, but what a brilliant Labour government in which you can both transform the country and elect a bunch of women who can dance in the way that the division pills did they were brilliant well um we'll, we'll definitely be watching everyone at progress will be watching and uh, my house will be watching as well and more importantly joe voting can i say voting <laughs> I just say, please let us know if there's anything we can do to to, to uh gotv for you on the uh when you're on the show i definitely will i definitely will <laughs> It's been uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, conversations flown by some some um, some really interesting things that you've said and things that that, um, that I think our listeners are gonna go enjoy hearing. So thank you so much for your for your time today, Jackie. Well, thank you. You know, I've uh, always had an enormous amount of time for progress, and it's a pleasure to be able to uh, talk to you. And thank you for all of the work that you've done throughout the years, keeping the, the flame of a progressive and electable Labour Party um, alight. And uh, you know, I'll always be there to support you. So thank you.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.